All right, open up your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 8, as Tyler and Amy read the teaching text. I entitled today's message, Hungry for God. And I begin with a confessional. I seem to be doing this often these days. I have a lot to confess, you know. But my confessional is this. I live a fairly food-preoccupied life. Doesn't it show? I live food-preoccupied. Students, come on, doesn't it show? I live with this, like, snacks not very far from me kind of life. I have them in my backpack. I have snacks in my backpack, as you know that. I have snacks in my car. I have snacks in my office. I have snacks in very close proximity. And I confessed a few weeks ago one of my most irrational fears. Do you remember what it was? Being 30,000 feet in the air without snacks. I don't know what it is, but that's why my backpack on a flight. If you want to sit by me, I promise you, you will be well fed. And you can ask my wife about this. She's lived a 31, almost 32 years of marriage. She will talk to you about, what is that strange sound I hear at 2 a.m.? Oh, that's my husband scurrying around in the kitchen making waffles and bacon at 2 a.m. Who doesn't do that? Come on. And sometimes if I want a little speedier, then I go peanut butter Captain Crunch, 2 a.m. Amen, right? Come on, let's go. I live a fairly food preoccupied life. I live with the motto, when in doubt, food can help. (laughs) Well, I came to know Jesus in my latter teen years, and I got into my early to mid-20s, and I began to notice a pattern when I was getting in this God-breathed book. Here's the pattern I noticed in the Bible, that it seemed to be a relationship between those who seek God who follow God, who worship God and walk with God, they participate in what the Bible calls fasting. Now, this hit me in a place I'm like, that sounds terrible to a very food-preoccupied person. And so then I just put a little summary in your notes. If you haven't pulled out your notes, please do so. Those of you online joining us, welcome. Your host will direct you accordingly. Just stay with me here for a little biblical history and then a little church history on this issue of fasting. Moses entered a 40-day fast on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, Exodus 34. Esther fasts and asks the Jews to fast for her when she prepares to approach the king. Remember, that's when she says, if I die, I die for such a time as this, Esther chapter 4. 2 Samuel 12, David fasts and lays kind of face down before the Lord when Nathan confronts him about his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And then in Luke chapter 2, Anna the prophetess, she's in the temple fasting and praying, and she's worshiping when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to dedicate him. And then, of course, Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, he fasts for 40 days right after his baptism. And then the early church Book of Acts, Acts 13, the church in Antioch, they're worshiping and fasting and praying together, and the Holy Spirit speaks to them and commissions Paul and Barnabas to go to another geographic area with the gospel. So it's just a quick, like from Moses to Esther to David to Anna to Jesus to the early church. Here seems to be the picture the Bible paints. To live life with God is to live in a fasting rhythm which helps us understand why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said something like, Matthew 6, 2, he says, when you give to the needy. 
Matthew 6, 5, when you pray. Matthew 6, 16, when you fast. We generally don't have much debate on give it, when you give to the needy and when do you pray. But we kind of, I know I do, I go, uh, really, when you fast? How about if you fast? No, when you fast. Which Jesus adds to that, Matthew 9, 15, he's speaking to the early followers about a time that was going to come for them. He was going to ascend to the heavens, and there'd be this gap between his ascension and his return. He's speaking about that in Matthew 9, 15. That's the period of time we live in. From Acts chapter 1, when he ascended to the heaven, when he ascended in the same way you see him go, he will return. The gap is called the church age. That's the age in which we live. And so in this church age, here's what Jesus said to his followers, then they will fast. Ugh, that one hit close. And then you start looking into the early church. The early church had an unbelievable record of fasting. Like it was just an emphasis that was beyond just a casual glance. It was central to the formation of these early followers of Jesus. One of the early bishops in the church, Epaphanius, he said, he was a leader in the 300s, and he said this, they, say, they think Epaphanius is the one who wrote the first biblical encyclopedia in the, around the year 350. And so he said, who does not know that the fast of the fourth and sixth days of the week, that's Wednesday and Friday, are observed by Christians throughout the world? Wow. Wednesday and Friday? Throughout the world. So, if you just trace through biblical history and then into church history from Luther to Calvin to Wesley to John Knox to Charles Finney to the Moravians, the history of Jesus' church is a history of a praying and fasting people. Mark Buchanan is one of, the favorite, one of my favorite writers. He's an author and professor at Ambrose University up in Canada. He summarizes it this way. Fasting is a God-led, spirit-driven activity. It is not just your own idea. It's not a legalistic requirement. It's not a work we perform. It's not a weight loss technique. It's not a hunger strike. No, it is a God and spirit work, a response to the leading and driving of the Godhead. In fact, fasting begins with a hunger for more of God's direction in your life. Fasting is born of an appetite for more of God's presence. Hear this, wanting God to lead, wanting the Spirit to drive, and what He often leads us and drives us into is a fast. And so, this morning, we're going to look at, from Deuteronomy 8, three core purposes of fasting. And then we're going to wrap up by talking about some real practical ways that we could maybe work this muscle and put it into a little more practice during the Lenten season. You say, well, why Deuteronomy 8? Well, Deuteronomy 8 is the text that Jesus quoted when he was at the end of his 40-day fast in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, there's an amazing understatement when it says the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, and at the end of the 40 days of fasting, it said he was hungry. That's one of those, of course, at the end of 40 days. He's hungry. And then he begins to, and then the tempter, Satan, comes to him and says, well, Jesus, why don't you tell these stones to become bread? 
And then Jesus' response is a quotation from Matthew 8. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he reaches back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 to a text that Moses wrote at the end of a 40-year journey in the wilderness, just as the Israelites were going to go into the promised land. He reaches back into that text and he pulls that and applies that into a fast. And in doing so, I think we're going to see three main purposes here from fasting from Deuteronomy 8, and it's the outline in your notes. Look at verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today. Notice the header if you have an NIV Bible. What's the header over Deuteronomy 8? It says, do not forget the Lord, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, underline that, to test you, underline that, in order to know what's in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. To teach you, underline that, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I had you underline the three main verbs that is drawing out from this Deuteronomy 8 text. The three main purposes of fasting, to humble, to test, and to teach. So first we want to look at how fasting humbles us by exposing our frailty and neediness. Did you see that in verse 3? He humbled you, causing you to hunger. It takes me less than eight hours without food to get really like cranky and irritable and lightheaded and usually have a headache in the midst of that and just feel generally weak. Any of you participate in fasting, you sharing in this journey with me at all? Like, my metabolism is kind of ratcheted up a few notches. I'm one of those crazy dysfunctional people that when I would visit the doctor in my younger years, they would say to me, don't worry, Eric, when you turn 25, it's going to, you know, shift. And when you turn 35, and when you turn 45, and then eventually one of the physicians just said to me, I think it was in my late 40s, like, hey, Simpson, what you need to do is just settle on this, that this is just like, what a gift from God you have. Like, you can just pile all kinds of calories into your body, and you have this amazing inferno inside of you that just burns them up with no real great explanation. Yes, many of you have asked me before, did they ever test you for tapeworms and all that? I went through all those tests because they thought I was so completely dysfunctional and broken as a human. And they're like, it doesn't make any explanation. This one physician put me on a super regimented diet and he was convinced 30 days later when I saw him that I would have X number of pounds on the scale up. And I show up at his office 30 days later after that and I drop two pounds. That was the one who said, yeah, yeah, we got nothing for you, buddy. So it doesn't take me long when I stop eating and consuming food to have this reality settle in upon me that I am a weak and needy and I get quite whiny. I get kind of just preoccupied with not the things of God. We'll get to those in a minute, but like the front end of a fast for me is just dealing with all the physical neediness of this body that's so dependent on manna from God's hand to sustain it physically. Now, have you noticed the propensity in the human heart is to try to kind of do it on your own? 
Have you noticed this? Like, we don't have to learn how to grow in self-reliance. We come out of the womb and we grow. The fallenness of the human condition, the default mode, is do it in our own wisdom and strength. Well, fasting is a discipline that runs against the grain of self-reliance. Fasting exposes how needy and frail and weak we are. One of the first movements you'll experience when you fast is how weak you feel physically. That's some of the point. That's some of the point, and we've got to learn to kind of embrace that, which is why Jesus, when he confronted the Pharisees about fasting, in Matthew 6, 16, he says, when you fast, he's talking to the disciples in Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. He's calling out the Pharisees. For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. And so Jesus says, hey, the very practice God intended to build humility in your life, you've hijacked it and you've used it to elevate self. You've made it about self-righteousness and spiritual superiority. Which, parenthesis, by the way, any of the focal practices or the spiritual disciplines can get hijacked in our fallenness and our sin nature. If they're not helping us build a life of humility and love and others-oriented and Christ-likeness, then something's off track. The goal of all the disciplines, including fasting, is to help us adopt and reflect more of the character of Jesus in our lives. They're not like a, it's not like a miracle practice you do, it's just part of these rhythms. Dallas Willard said, if we want to embrace more of the life of Jesus, then we have to embrace the lifestyle of Jesus. And one of the lifestyle things as he models is, if you're going to walk with me, you're going to learn how to fast. And when you fast, you're going to come to the end of your own physical self. You're going to find how frail and needy you are as a physical person. Buchanan summarizes it this way. I put this quote in your notes. He says, I can run on my own strength for long stretches. I can forget my limits and become self-reliant, cocky, swaggering, thinking that apart from me, Jesus can do nothing. I need a holy habit to prove to myself that the opposite is true, to move me from self-imposed worship to real worship, to move me from false humility to genuine humility, to move me from self-glorifying treatment of my body to a recognition of my frailty. So the first purpose of Deuteronomy 8 of fasting is this front row seat to this humbling work. It humbles us by exposing how desperately dependent and weak we are physically on God to provide the physical sustenance. The Bible calls it manna from heaven to simply exist day to day. That's one of the first movements of fasting, a work of humility. Second purpose of fasting from Deuteronomy 8, there's a testing work. Do you see that in verse 2? It tests you in order to know what's in your heart. Fasting tests us by revealing our hearts. This is one of the reasons we find this practice so difficult. Beyond just the physical challenges, once you get through the headache, once you get through kind of the lightheadedness, once you get through some of the mild irritability, once you get through some of the hunger pains, if you stay with it long enough, if you stay in it and begin to embrace it, Here's what starts coming up. It starts exposing some stuff that's going on in the inmost being. Like one of the reasons we push against fasting sometimes is, like when I'm feeling angry and depressed over something, you know a good cheeseburger and fries is comfort for the soul. Or I'm feeling really like easily irritated or I'm preoccupied with someone's opinion of me. Do you know like, like you, I can just smother over all that stuff 
with some good, some pizza and some gear deli chocolate brownies. Have you ever had those? Those will change your life. Gear deli chocolate brownies and pizza. Just smother over that kind of stuff that's churning around inside of you. Do you see, fasting removes one of the things. We use this language when we go through a specifically emotionally intense time in our lives. We often say what? I just need some good comfort food. Say, well, what is that? There's something about the role that food plays to kind of kind of mask or smother over or smooth over or bury underneath some comfort food, some stuff that Jesus wants to get at. Things that are churning in the inmost being. That's what fasting does. Fasting removes one of those layers. It removes one of those places of comfort we run to and look to. In the language of the Bible, this is what Psalm 19 says, meditations of my heart. So here's what fasting, fasting starts putting you in touch with the meditations of your heart. Have you thought about the meditations of your heart lately? So what does that mean? Those are the scripts, the messages that are running around your heart that are on replay and repeat over and over and over. Fasting helps get in touch with those. James Bryan Smith, in his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, he talks about this meditations of the heart, and he puts a little chart together that I put on your notes for you here. He, he contrasts false imperative narratives. Stay with me here. False imperative narratives, or fins, he calls them, fins. An imperative is a command-based. Remember that from your English classes? Imperative means command. It shows up with language like always and never. That's an imperative. So we've got these false imperative narratives running around in our heart, and they wreak havoc on our lives. They bind us with anxiety and stress in a way where there's this kind of low-grade simmering anger right under the surface of our life. That's what fins do in driving our life. And there's a sample that James Bryan Smith puts, I put in your notes, fins like, I am alone. Things always have to go as I want them. Something terrible will happen if I make a mistake. I must be in control all of the time. Life must always be fair and just. I need to anticipate everything that will happen to me today. I need to be perfect all the time. Anybody have those fins running around and swimming in the heart on repeat and replay? I'm a completely dysfunctional Enneagram 1. Any other Enneagram 1s in the room? Come on, let's see Enneagram 1s. So I live with this perpetual script, a meditation in my heart is it's never enough. It's never good enough, complete enough, finished enough. It's never enough. It could always be better. It's a relentless kind of message for a one to, to, to deal with. It's a fin that's running around in the heart, a false imperative narrative. And it gets compounded with, because I always think it could be better or different, I think I've always got to give more to something, more energy, more effort. I think I have to be more in control. So control is a big issue and then wanting to see it done really well is a big issue, and never being satisfied is a big issue. Ones are rough to live with any measure of peace and joy in life, right, ones? And so here's what a fast does. A fast turns up the volume on all those meditations in the heart. Do you see why we run from fasts at times? I'd rather smother it over with pizza and brownies. But if I fast and I stay with it long enough, hear me? I have to stay in it long enough to begin to come to grips with and in touch with what's really running around in here. What are the messages that are beginning to drive my life? And then as James Brian Smith did a good job in his book, 
He contrasts them with kingdom narratives. When I was at a monastery a few years ago, one of the monks said to me, he said, Eric, remember, don't forget this, the journey from where you are to where God wants you to be starts right where you are. So Eric, take these days, take these hours, take this quiet space and settle in on where you actually are, the current realities in here, because it'll give you clarity then on how we're going to get to where God wants you to be. Well, that's one of the reasons we run from fast, because we're like, I don't necessarily want to see what's going on down there. We don't want to get in touch with the fins. And so we've moved then to, if we will stay in it though, we'll embrace it, and we'll let the Spirit meet us there, we can then begin to elevate and replace the false narrative with the kingdom narrative. Like from I am alone, the false narrative, to you're never alone. Jesus is always with you. You want to ground yourself in the kingdom narrative. Things will always have to go as I want them to. The kingdom narratives, God's ways are infinitely higher than my ways. A false narrative, something terrible will happen if I make a mistake. Kingdom narrative, mistakes happen all the time, and things usually work out fine. I must be in control all the time. Kingdom narrative, Jesus is in control. Life must always be fair and just. Kingdom narrative, life is not always fair and just, but God gets the last word. I need to anticipate everything that will happen to me today. The kingdom narrative is God is with me and will help me through whatever this day holds. The false narrative, I need to be perfect all the time. Jesus accepts me even though I am not perfect. And fasting removes one of the cover-up mechanisms in our life that we have with food. It removes that, and it kind of helps the stuff that's lurking underneath there. It gets at some of those false narratives and help us ground ourselves into these kingdom narratives, and it kind of begins to reveal and surface itself. The volume gets turned up. And James uh, Brian Smith summarizes it this way. We may lose sight of God, but God never loses sight of us. Amen to that. God gives us space to experiment, grow, and mature. God never intrudes, but this doesn't mean God's not with us that He's not watching us, that He's not intimately familiar with our comings and goings. Jesus' narrative, hear this, is that God permits nothing to happen to us that He cannot redeem and use for good. That's a kingdom narrative. So fasting humbles us. The first movement in fasting is this work of humility because you grasp how kind of physically frail and needy you are just by physically existing. And then if you'll stay with it, it'll move into this kind of testing space. It's this revealing work of the narratives of the heart, the meditations of the heart. And if we'll stay in and allow those to surface, we can begin to replace the false narratives with kingdom narratives. And that leads us to the third and final movement from Deuteronomy 8 with fasting. Fasting teaches us. So from humbling to testing to teaching, it teaches us to feast on God. I want you to see a connection here in Deuteronomy 8 between gluttony and amnesia. Okay, I want you to see this. See if you see the connection. Verse 10 through 14, Deuteronomy 8. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He's given you. Verse 11. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, here's the gluttony, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget 
the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It seems to be that Moses is connecting full bellies breeding forgetful people. Did you see the connection? Full bellies breeding forgetful people or comfortable life circumstances tend to lead us down a path and make us vulnerable for self-reliance, which is why uh, the scholar Cornelius Plantinga said, gluttony is an appetite suppressant for the things of God. See, it's a practice that, it's fasting that sifts the appetites of our lives. Fasting exposes a hunger, and it gets us to, if we'll stay with it, what are you hungry for? Like, what's the deeper hungers of your life? Of course, you want the immediate kind of physical hunger pain to be satisfied, but fasting exposes, and Jesus is trying to press us to something beyond the physical into the deeper hungers of the heart. And that's what comes out of the text here. It says, like, the people were hungry for a good land, find houses. Did you see that? Large numbers of flocks and herds, silver and gold increasing. Those are good things to hunger after. They're not bad things to have an appetite for those things. But a fast reminds you they're just lesser appetites. There's something more important, more significant, more eternal than just good land, fine houses, large flocks, and silver and gold. And it's these lesser appetites that get exposed in a fast. Because when you fast and you begin to come to grips with your appetites and what you're really hungry for and you recognize how much energy you're spending on satisfying the lesser appetite, you begin to realize, wow, there's the food of this world cannot satisfy the deepest aches and the pains of my true heart. There's nothing this world can provide. No amount of it can kind of take the edge off of that. And that's why Isaiah 55 too uses language like, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? You see that language like, why listen, listen to me, then it says, and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Do you see that connection? That's the language of the deeper appetites. It's saying, hey, there is a craving in your heart that's pushing you to a banquet table that God's prepared. A fast helps you come into the deeper connections to the cravings, the longings, the hunger pains of the heart and the soul. The kind of hunger pain that no amount of achievement in the marketplace is going to satisfy. It doesn't matter how many rungs you go up the salary class. It doesn't matter how many titles you adopt. It doesn't matter how many people report to you or how much influence you have or how many accomplishments and accolades. As important and helpful as those can be in life, it's not going to touch the deepest hunger pain that you're dealing with. There's a pain deeper still than that. No matter how great your family life is, you meet the special someone, you build a marriage and you build a family, no matter how great your marriage is, no matter how great your kids are, it's not going to touch the deeper hunger pain. No matter how big the balance gets in the 401k, it's not going to touch the deeper hunger pain. No matter how satisfying that ministry dream that you have in stepping, it's not going to touch the deeper hunger pain. See, all the straining, all the striving, all the longing, all the pointing of that hunger pain, it's pointing you to a banquet table that God has set for us in Jesus. It's pointing you to say, hey, do you see that the best that the things of this world have to offer, it can't hold a candle to the eternal glory that God has set for us in Jesus. There is a table that you're invited to feast upon. That's the language the psalm says. 
feast upon. Drink from the rivers of delights. Feast on the abundance of my house. Come and be satisfied at this table. There's a joy that touches the deeper longings. A fast puts you in touch with all those things. A fast starts in this space of humbling us physically. It moves to the revealing and testing part of what's going on underneath here. And then it lands us, if we'll stay with it, there's this kind of teaching and training and righteousness that comes with the sifting of the appetites of our lives. It helps us settle on and get clear on the lesser appetites. And what becomes clearer in a fast is the banquet table of the glory of Jesus that's set before us and the invitation to anyone from any background to come and sit and feast upon really the deepest hunger of your life. You're really, really what you're most hungry for. You may not have the language for it, but a fast will help you get to this spot. You're most hungry for God. That's what you're hungry for. It might get masks and diverted in a lot of ways, but if you stay in a fast and with a fasting rhythm in your life, you'll find out, actually, the deepest hunger of my life is a hunger for personal encounter with the living God. And so, worship team, come on back up. Here's how we're going to wrap it up. So just a quick recap, right? There's this humbling work of fasting, there's a testing work, and then there's a teaching work of fasting. And if you've never fasted before... You know, one of the roles of the Lenten season is to invite the people of God to practice fasting. That's why one of the early church fathers put it together. They said, hey, we're going to work the muscle of fasting during these six weeks. So what a great time of the year to step in and give it a try. So where do you start? I would start with one meal this week. If you've never fasted before, pick a meal. Now listen, pick a meal that you usually eat. Okay, no cheating here. Pick a meal that's going to hit you in a spot where you're going to feel that. Okay, kind of a primary meal of the week. Pick one and fast from it and see what God does with that. So what's the experience going to be like? The first phase of it is going to be physically very difficult. You're going to have to work through the physical challenges of it first and stay with it long enough. And if you will stay with it through the Lenten season, you practice that next week, kind of stay in a weekly. You got four or five weeks left of Lent here, like stay in this, try it for the next month, pick a meal a week. If you're already in a fasting rhythm, turn the dial up one notch. If you're already fasting a meal a week, make it two meals. The early church started in the 300s. They said every Wednesday and Friday, that's where I'm going to start this week. I'm going Wednesday, Friday. It was like, well, if that was good enough for Eusebius and the church early, they, they said that Christians throughout the world did it 300, that's a good place to start. So Wednesday and Friday, I'm going to pick a period of fasting on those. Join me in that. Or those of you fasting veterans, just turn the dial up one. If you're fasting a day a week, make it two days a week. And just turn it up a notch. And say, what do you do with the time? You repurpose the time and energy that you would spend preparing the food, consuming the food, cleaning up from the food, focusing on the food. You redirect all that to what Jesus says, I have a food this world knows not of. I have the kind of food that you're deeply longing for, that your heart is crying out for, and you repurpose it for the things of Scripture. Probably each of us could take a little more time and be in God's Word. Maybe there's a a spiritual kind of devotional book, or someone's given you a, a book that you know would be good for your soul and your walk with God, and it's been sitting on the nightstand and you've just not gotten to it. Why not take a little time during your fast and spend some time in that? Or maybe somebody gave you a journal and you've looked at your journal and you thought, I had to write something in my journal at some point. Maybe take some time during the fast and spend some time to journal. 
Maybe go on that prayer walk that you've been wanting to go on. Maybe come and spend some time in the prayer room here. Maybe come out on Wednesday night for a prayer set or Sunday morning here for a prayer set. Just do something. You repurpose and you reprioritize the time and the energy and you redirect it to the deeper appetites of the soul. That's what a people who are hungry for God do. If you're not hungry for God, fasting makes zero sense. Like there was a, why would I do that? So the, the ultimate answer of the why of fasting is, I want God. I want more of God. I want to draw near to Him. I want to listen to Him. I want to discern. I want to be, be able to be in step with His presence more. I want to just step into more of what He has in my life. That's why the people of God, for basically the origin of the relationship with Him, they've just been in a fasting rhythm because there's some connection that you're going to be a praying people and you're going to be a fasting people if you're going to be a people who seek God, who hunger for Him who walk with him, listen to him, submit to him. And that's what we want to be as a community. And so I want to invite us. Lenten season is here. Let's have some conversations this week. When I run into you this week in random places, I'm going to ask you, how's the fasting going? Don't run away from me. Okay, don't swear at me and don't run away from me, okay? I'm just going to ask you, how's the fasting going? And I give you permission, you ask me the same. Because church, this is what people do who are hungry for God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for preserving a history in your word and then with your church that invites us into a lifestyle that candidly we would never choose apart from there being a pattern and a history and an invitation. And so there's some in the room or some listening online, this is a completely foreign concept and you've never even considered it in your life beyond something related to weight loss. This is the first time you've ever connected ceasing eating of food to hungering for God. And so would you meet us this week? Would you meet us this Lenten season? Would you help us draw near to you as you draw near to us? Would you open up our eyes? Would you humble us? Would you test us? Would you reveal? Would you do some work of harvesting out and crucifying some false narratives and deepening and grounding us in some kingdom narratives? Would you do that? God, we need your help. Change the meditations of our heart, God. And then would you teach us and train us in righteousness. Help us to come to grips with the deeper appetites of our lives. I just confess so much time and energy I spend running after lesser things. In the language of Isaiah 55, things that just don't satisfy. And so may this be a season where I feast on the abundance of your house and drink from the river of your delights. May that be our testimony as a church family. In Jesus' name.